Let's pray. Lord, as we come this morning, we're so thankful that you have given us a time each week to be in your word and to to hear your word read, but also preached as well. And God, what we need this morning is not my words, but we need your word. And I pray that you would uh, speak this morning to us from the scriptures. God, open our, our, our hearts, our minds, our wills to receive your word by faith and to trust you, Lord. We pray that you would guard us from distractions. Uh, Lord, I know that Satan, more than anything, does not want us to do exactly what we are about to do. So please help us to hear you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this week you may have heard about the chapel service at Union Theological Seminary. I don't know if you did or not, but it was a chapel service. I think it was on Tuesday where the students asked for forgiveness from plants. The students confessed their climate sins to a group of potted plants that were placed in the middle of the room. And I'm not making this up, okay? As a matter of fact, the seminary sent out a tweet after it happened, and this is what it said, and I'll quote, Today in chapel, we confess to plants. Together, we held our grief, our joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Unquote. Now, I wish we'd just break up into small sessions and maybe get your reactions uh, to that. But one of the reactions that we ought to have is to look at that and just say, such meaningless. You know, we read in God's word in, in the first commandment even that God says that he alone is to be worshipped, not anything in creation. And while such an example may seem rather obviously ridiculous to us, especially in the light of God's word, this morning, God wants to challenge us about our worship of him as we look at our text today. It's, it's true that, that meaning is found in faith in God, but much religion today seems little better than a charade and looks pretty meaningless itself when you look at the church today, especially that in America. You can see why so many people think of religion as just a, a grasping after the wind. It's just a waste of time. And no wonder that church attendance in America is on the decline. On the decline. But as we come to our text today, the preacher, Koheleth, Solomon, whatever you want to call him, he knows how easy it is even in evangelical churches, to find ourselves going through the motions of worship, whether it be singing of hymns or following along in the scripture or listening to the sermon. And so he speaks to people like you and me this morning. His words are, are not for people who never go to church at all, but it's for the church. It's for the well-meaning persons who come to church every week cheerfully 
and who like to sing the songs of the faith. People who find it hard sometimes to pay attention at times, whose thoughts wander when we pray, who are full of good intentions about serving God but sometimes have trouble following through. They are for people who know that they need to get involved in outreach but usually come up with some excuse for not doing it, at least not right now. They are for people who have seriously started personal Bible study programs at least a dozen times and never have finished, who uh, try to pay attention in church but usually spend half their time thinking about the upcoming week. That's who Solomon is writing to, people like that. Or maybe I should say people like us, right? Is that not oftentimes what we might struggle with? You see, the preacher wants us to distinguish this morning between empty, meaningless worship from the real thing. He wants us to repent of a formalism that expresses itself in mere external worship like we read this morning in Matthew chapter 6. You know, those who go out and they pray publicly and they, they, they have... They hire people to come with trumpets and blow a trumpet and say, Hey, look at me. Look how spiritual I am. And yet, there's no change in that person's heart. He wants us to repent of those things and rather to worship him from the heart. Now, when I say from the heart, I'm not talking about just emotionalism. I'm talking about um, in our minds and Yes, in our emotions, but also in our wills. The, the Bible uses that term heart to talk about the internal part of who we are. And he wants us to come and to experience living communion with God. And so this morning what Solomon does is he warns us against dangers or faults in worship that make our worship futile and unreal and empty and fruitless. And, and he does so by speaking of a worshiper who at first is going into the house of God. And then as he's presenting his prayers and worship and then as he leaves the church and he goes back into his regular everyday ordinary life. And so the preacher has cautions to give us this morning concerning our conduct before worship, during worship and after worship. Before worship, during worship and after public worship. And so let's look at God's word this morning. And first of all, look at our conduct before public worship. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that what they are doing is evil. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Do you know what Solomon wants us to see? He wants us to see that fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. What? That acceptable worship begins before it begins. It, in other words, worship is something that we do even before we start worshiping. He, he wants us to see that it really has to do with our approach to God. A genuine worshiper comes to church deliberately and thoughtfully with the realization that he is about to meet with the God of the universe. And he approaches God in worship with his ears wide open, as you might say, drawing near to listen, to hear God's word and to, read, and, and, uh, to hear the word that's, that's spoken 
and read and preached. And so, as we look at this this morning, I, I think it's worth asking a few questions. Am I ready to listen to the voice of God this morning? Not to come hear Pastor Rick preach, but to hear the Word of God. Is my heart open to spiritual instruction? If God says it, am I willing to do it? No matter what that might cost me. And are my ears attentive to the message that I will hear from the Bible? You know, what, what likelihood is there that there will be much good in our worship if our conversations leading up to that door where we walk in to worship if we're talking about what we're going to do after church or if our focus is on our favorite hobby or if we're thinking about the gazillion things that we have to do this week or whatever the topic may be. You know, those things that we're thinking about that's other than God, how does that help us in terms of our preparation for worship? Is looking things up on the internet, on our phones, before the worship service, good preparation for worshiping God? What about slipping into church at the last minute or habitually strolling in late partway through the service? What do these things indicate about our view and our approach to God? You know, for our forefathers, Sunday began actually on Saturday night with preparation and anticipation of meeting with God and to hear Him the next day. And so there was times of prayer, there was times of meditation, there was times of, of, of study. Brothers and sisters, I, I want you to understand that the intent of my questions and those comments is not so much to raise guilt in our minds as much as it is to examine our hearts and to ask ourselves, what is my attitude toward God in worship? Because that attitude comes through in our worship. As one preacher put it, he goes, if the soil of our hearts are not softened, with previous meditation of God to make them receptive, we're not likely to drink in much of the showers of blessing which fall all around us during worship. Now, think about it, kids, okay? Think about those times in Kansas where it's hot and there's no rain. What happens in Kansas when there's no rain? At least what happens to the ground. It gets hard, right? And, and in some places, I've noticed, and maybe this is just my yard, but even the ground begins to crack, right? And there gets to be, gets to be uh, gaps in your yard. And so you begin to pray, oh, Lord, we need rain. And, and so what happens? God finally sends just a downpour of rain. And, and what happens to the ground? You might say, well, it gets soft. Well, actually, not at first. At first, the rain just runs off the ground because it's too hard to receive the rain. And, and what we need in order for that ground to receive that rain is a little bit of moisture. What's, what's a better thing is if it could be a whole day of a drizzling rain that comes and that softens the ground. And our hearts are much the same way when it comes to worship. You know, we must watch our step before entering God's house or we may be guilty of worshiping as a fool. A fool doesn't worry about preparation. He doesn't worry about the condition of his heart. A fool comes into God's house to worship, but he doesn't realize that what he offers to God in worship is, what's the text say? It's evil. It's not misguided. It's not bad. It's actually evil. 
Remember, the preacher is talking, though, about us, about people in church. Yet they have so little understanding of who God is or what it means to worship Him in spirit and truth who come to God's house without preparation. They don't even realize that what they're doing is wicked. We need to understand that wherever we go to worship, that we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered His holy people to hear His holy word. And if we take that for granted, not listening to God and what He says, then the Bible says that we are guilty of a great evil because we have despised the gospel that has been given to us. This explains why people have even been struck dead at the doorpost of God's house. I mean, just a couple examples that come to mind are Nadab and Abihu, who offered unholy fire to the Lord in Leviticus 10, or Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Lord about how much money they put in the offering in Acts chapter 5. And, and each of these dreadful acts of judgment uh, took place at a new era of worship. That Nadab and Abihu, it was when the priesthood was being established and temple worship was being given to God's people. And in Acts, it was when the New Testament church was being formed. And the reason I want to tell you that is, is because sometimes people look at that and they go, yeah, but God doesn't typically do that. You know, why, why did he just, you know, he just did it to, to one, uh, to just a couple of people. You know, he doesn't typically do that. Well, he was wanting to show us how zealous he was for his worship when he was establishing that worship, whether it be in the Old Testament or whether it be in the New Testament. You know, when we consider the holiness of God and compare it with our unholiness of worship, it's a wonder that any of us are still alive, except, brothers and sisters, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ not only suffered that we might be saved, but also through His obedience, including the perfect worship He offered to the Father, because of that, our worship is acceptable. I mean, think about what uh, Jesus, you know, in, uh, in Hebrews, um, he, he took the words of Psalm 22, 22 and made them his own, where he said, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, these words here refer to the worship that Jesus gave in the temple and the synagogue. And now just picture that the son of God singing the Psalms um, that the Holy Spirit had inspired to the Father. And by faith in Christ, that perfect worship that Christ offered now becomes ours. And this is part of what it means for us to know Christ, that our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by His Son. We, when we know that even our worship is forgiven, then we can approach God with joyful confidence. You know, rather than saying, you know, if I worship God the right way, he'll accept me. Really what we need to say is, I'm already accepted. And through his crucifixion and his resurrection, and now it's my privilege to come into the presence of God to worship him. Kids, I'm going to talk to you just a second. Okay? Most everybody else is here because they choose to be here. But you kids are not. You know why you're here? Because your parents are here. And they're bringing you with them. It can be very easy for kids to come and to sit in church every week and to be thinking, 
when's Pastor Rick going to be done? When are we going to be done singing these songs? I hate these songs. And it can be so easy to look with despise upon God's worship. It is my prayer that you would come to see God and to know Him as He is and to understand the depth of your sin that you might come to worship Him as He so deserves. Second of all, the conduct during public worship. We already have the same thoughtfulness with which we approach God as we come into the house of God as well. He said, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, Solomon sees that God is exalted in all his glory, and he also understands that not only is God exalted, but as we see God is exalted, then we begin to see ourselves as we truly are, as only creatures who are lowly before him which causes us to be careful about the words that we speak in worship. Now, he said, let your words be few. The real issue is not the number of words that we speak, but whether the words we speak are sincere, you know, that they are pleasing to the Lord. And so the God we worship, or for some people who pretend to worship, is the sovereign and mighty God who rules over the universe. And this is if, if there's any verse in the Bible, this is one of the bi best verses that put us sort of back in our place to show us our humility. God is in heaven. We are on earth. We are mortal beings. We are limited in time and space. There's a vast distance between the, the finite, which is us, and God who is infinite. It's what the theologians call the, the creator-creature distinction. You know, it's so easy, brothers and sisters, for us to think more highly of ourselves. As a matter of fact, Paul says that to the, the church at Rome uh, in Romans 12. He said, you people think more highly of yourselves than you ought, which is typically the way we think. And yet, the scripture is very careful to teach that God in all his glory is great and mighty and awesome. And we are mere creatures. That everything that we do... All our whole life is in dependence upon God. Without Him, we would cease to exist. And Isaiah uh, makes this point in Isaiah 55. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And if that's true, and if we begin to see God for who He is and who we are as lowly creatures then it causes us to be careful about the things that we speak. We need to ask ourselves, do we really mean what we say when we stand in worship? Do you know what you read this morning in the scriptures? Do you remember what you sang in the songs that you sang? Do you remember the confession that, that you spoke this morning? We can just sort of breeze through all those things and speak them very loudly for everybody to hear and yet or even to pray and have our prayers be prayerless because simply repeating pious words doesn't mean that our words come from a godly heart. And so he, he says here we need to be careful not to be like the fool. He's the one who says a lot of words hoping that God would hear him as we read in Matthew chapter 6. And if you look here at verse 3, 
Um, it's, it's somewhat cryptic, but I think the sense of what Solomon is trying to say is, is it seems to be that when our lives are busy, it, it causes us to dream dreams that disturb our sleep, right? It seems like the busier life is, maybe the more active our dreams are. And he goes, as the dreams show the disturbance caused by a lot of busyness in our lives, he said, so the many words show that a person is a fool. That when we just quickly say the things and just sort of walk through the motions of worship, it shows that our worship's not really sincere, it's really foolish. He says, instead, we ought to look to Jesus, who is our, our perfect example. And the Bible says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Where words are many, sin is not absent. And as we read that, we know that none of us are perfect, but Jesus is the perfect man. Every word that he ever spoke is true. Jesus um, never made a rash comment. Even when he was being persecuted, he didn't respond in unrighteous anger. To the end of his life, when he was dying on the cross, even the word that he spoke was very carefully chosen. And it is Christ's grace that can help us speak the words that are pleasing to the Lord. The Savior of perfect speech can touch our lips and our grace. It's by the power of His Holy Spirit that we can glorify and honor the Lord. And so we are called to come with preparation into worship, with carefulness in our worship as we are worshiping Him. But also as we leave the worship, as we'll do here in a little bit, um, to conduct ourselves a certain way. Our worship doesn't stop with the benediction. In church, I know oftentimes we might think that, that now worship is over and now we can get back to life. But actually, we see here that, that all of life is, is worship. So after telling us to listen up and watch what we say, the preacher now tells us to do what we say. Or to be more precise, he says, pay what you vow. Look at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. In biblical times, people often made a vow to God, usually in the context of public worship. It wasn't a private thing between me and Jesus. It was a public thing that, that you would do. And as a way of, of consecrating yourself to the Lord, of showing the seriousness of you know, the fact that you were going to do something to the Lord. Uh, vows were not ordinarily required, but they were sort of extraordinarily commitments to God. And that's why... Solomon says in verse 5 that if a man doesn't intend to fulfill his vow, it's better that he didn't make that vow in the first place. But as is often the case, it's much easier to make a promise than to keep it. And yet people do this all the time, do they not? Especially when they're bargaining with God in prayer. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe these words have come out of your mouth, God, if only you will forgive me just this once, maybe you have wrestled with a besetting sin that you've struggled with, and you're like, Lord, if you'll just forgive me, I swear I'll never commit this sin again. That's a prayer that's often prayed by very, very young believers, you know, when we're still very naive. Or maybe you said something like, Lord, I promise that as soon as I get more money, if I, can, if I can just get that job and, and get a little more leeway in the budget, I'll, I'll start giving 10% to you. If you've ever offered prayers like that, as many of us have, then you also know that it's easy to forget those promises. Jesus tells the parable 
that sort of goes along with this about the son who told his father that he would go out into the field and he would work in the field, but yet he never did it. And the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes would have called that boy a fool or that man a fool because he never did what he said. And it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy to make promises in church on Sunday when we are in God's presence, but yet that seem to fade so quickly when we're out during the week. And I think that's very true. As we, as we look at that and we're in the presence of God, we probably never see more clearly than we are, when we are quiet with the Lord, with our Bibles open and in an attitude of prayer. When we are in those times, we see life as it is. And so we will be, Lord, I want you to use me. Lord, take my life and let it be yours. We make those vows. We make those promises to the Lord. We say those things to God. And then we leave during the week and it's like they become a distant memory. Well, in the Old Testament, they used to have a practice to where the priest or maybe sometimes a messenger of the priest would follow up with people who had made vows and not kept them. And, and Solomon talks about that. And he said, you know, maybe the messenger comes to you and said, hey, you haven't kept your vow. And you say, oh, well, I, yeah, I wasn't I didn't really mean that. Actually, yeah, I yeah, I wasn't really serious or and we come up with some kind of excuse. And, and it's not uncommon for us to do that as well. Um, kids, have you ever seen someone make something out of glass or out of metal? You know, with glass, they have that big long pole, right? And they put that glob of glass. And what do they do? They put it in the fire, don't they? Because it has to be really hot because if you're going to mold and, and shape that, he has to, the, the person that's doing this has to be able to blow on that pole and form that glass into whatever shape they want. Or a piece of metal is a lot the same way. You only can work with it as long as it's hot. But as it begins to cool down, then it's not so pliable. You can't mold and shape it anymore. And, and it's a lot the same way with our own hearts. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if a, if a person was making something out of glass and they got it half done and they said, you know what, I didn't get this done. I think I'm just going to set it down. I'm going to go to lunch. I'll come back in an hour and I'll finish it. Well, they can blow on that pole all they want, but that is in the shape that it is. And sometimes that is the condition of our hearts as well. When we come into God's presence, it's like putting us in the furnace and our hearts are moldable and shapeable. But when we leave and we get caught up in the busyness of life, we're sort of like that pole that gets laid on the side. And we just sort of end up being shaped and formed sort of half melted and half shaped. It's only when we're put back in the fire in the presence of God that once again our hearts are softened. So it's not just... Uh, our words that we owe to God, but our works as well. If we tell him that we're going to do something uh, to be involved in ministries or whatever, uh, then we need to do that. In fact, uh, Ecclesiastes says that we need to do it without delay, lest our heart be tempted and we not keep our word before the Lord. So we need to be careful not to play games with God. But, but he says in verse uh, f 7, what is truly to be the attitude of our hearts that, uh, that promotes this uh, heartfelt worship to God? Uh, he says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, 
there is vanity. In other words, when we come into the house of the Lord and we just go through the motions of worship, it's vanity, it's futile, it's meaningless. It'd be much better just stay at home probably and just uh, enjoy the day some other way than to come into the house of the Lord. But he said, but God is the one who must be feared. As, as you look at the end of Ecclesiastes, we, we, we reach the conclusion of the spiritual quest that Solomon is taking us on. And he says that the goal of life is what? In Ecclesiastes 12, 13. It is to fear God. And, and, and he's, he's giving us a little glimpse of that here in our text. He says, really, what Ecclesiastes is about is it's, it's showing us that it's taking us from a life of vanity to a life of reverence, to a life of fear of the Lord. Now, what do we mean by fear of the Lord? Well, it's not, um, I'm afraid of the dark type of fear, kids. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, it's the fear that arises when we realize that God, who's the creator of the heavens and the earth, is the one whom we're dealing with. When we see the greatness and the magnificence of God, and we are in awe, of who he is and realize that that's who we're dealing with. Genesis 22 is a great example. And you're welcome to turn there if you want. But I think most likely you know the story where Abraham is told by God to go and offer his son Isaac. Sort of the ultimate challenge for him because Isaac is the son of promise. God said, through Isaac I will fulfill my promise and yet God appears to Abraham and commands him to do something that would cast doubt as to whether God could keep his promises but nevertheless Abraham obeys and as Abraham raises the knife to sacrifice his son we know what happens that the angel of the Lord appears and says stop there's a ram over there go get that ram take your son off the altar and sacrifice that ram but the Lord also says Abraham I now know that you fear God. I know that you fear God. You see, fear is a, is a faith that acts in obedience to God on the basis of his divine promises. And, and if you look at uh, throughout the Old Testament, we don't have time to do that this morning, but you'll see that this phrase fear of, the, of God is equivalent oftentimes to faith and belief as it's used in the New Testament. And that's why James uses Abraham as an example of faith, even though the words faith or belief don't really occur in Genesis 22. It is this fear of God, this faith that, that Solomon is talking about here. And as we live our life with a focus upon the Lord, like, yes, Lord, I am here. Remember uh, Samuel, and uh, he heard the Lord's voice. And he couldn't figure out what it was. And what did Eli the priest tell him to do? He said to say, yes, Lord, here I am. Do with me as you wish. It's that total submission to God and to, um, because of the greatness of who he is. And as we have that attitude, as we come into the presence of God, our worship will be real. Our relationship with God will not be just going through the motions. It will be a sense of, of glorying, of delighting in the presence of who our God is. You know, when we fear God in this way, we'll come to worship with expectancy even and awe. We will be ready to listen to what God says. 
We will be careful in limiting our speech to the words that will please Him. We will give God what He deserves, including whatever time and talent that He so desires. Ecclesiastes 5 was written to help us to take God more seriously when we worship. T.M. Moore, I, I like him as an author, author, and he's written sort of a, a paraphrase of these verses. I think they can help us to sort of uh, understand what Solomon is saying. So let me just read that in closing. How brazen and dishonest people are with their religion. They'll go as far as it suits their needs, so they attend the services and sing the hymns, and when they have to, they give a little money to the Lord. But do they live as one should do who makes a vow to God? (laughs) Don't kid yourself. Among their friends, their faith is on the shelf. Remember, God knows everything. He knows our hearts when we before Him bring our worship, and you can't fool Him. So take a good look at yourself before you make your next appearance before the Lord and go to listen, not to speak, for he will know just what you need. Why any fool can spout a lovely prayer or sing a hymn about his faith? His words are mindless, like a dream, although to people looking on them they seem impressive. Not to God, though, for words are cheap just like the dreams you have while you're asleep. Brothers and sisters, God wants our hearts. He doesn't want us just to show up. He wants us to come and to be right with Him as we come into His house to worship Him in awe and glory. Please bow your heads with me this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given us today. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place, it, uh, that your word would not depart from us. God, I pray that we would not turn from the left or to the right, but God, that we would, would seek um, to be diligent, to um, pray that you would apply these words to our lives. God, that we would seek to live in a way that would honor you, um, both as we come to our time of worship, but also, Lord, as we leave as well. We thank you, Father, and pray these things in your name. Amen.